There's something about being a multiracial kid from the South, about being in spaces where you're the only one, that almost forces you to imagine a world where you're not. Greg Pak's writing has consistently centered around creating space for diverse and relatable characters that invest the reader in who the character is, not just what their superpowers can do. I sat down with Greg, best known for his work creating Planet Hulk and co-creating Amadeus Cho, to talk about how he became a writer, his desire to create space for characters he didn't have as a kid, and why the centaur was his go-to character in Dungeons & Dragons. Welcome to Marvel's Voices. This is Greg Pak's story. So do me a favor. Yes. Pronounce your full name for me. Greg Pak. So it is Pac. Yes. We were having this discussion. Yeah. <laughs> and I was like, I've heard people pronounce it wrong, yeah, yeah, yeah. and I don't know who was wrong. Well, it's confusing because it's a name. I mean, in Korean, it's the same name that gets transliterated now as Park, you know, uh, oh. even though just because that's how they anglicize it, um, even though in Korean, there's no R in the original Korean. But then there's another name that's that's Peck in Korean, you know, which is very similar. And sometimes you'll see that P-A-E-K. So, uh, so yeah, uh, my, my grandfather came over in 38, which is uh, before most folks did, and uh, he just transliterated it the way he wanted. So he just, <laughs> it hadn't been standardized, you know? So, uh, so that's why we're pox. Did he come straight yeah. to New York? No. Uh, he actually, yeah, I mean, that's a whole another story, but um, he uh, came over in 38 as a seminary student, and... Um, he studied in Dallas, of all places, and some other places, uh, uh, and eventually worked in the internment camps that the government set up for Japanese Americans, the incarceration camps, as a translator. And after the war, he brought over the rest of the family to Hawaii. So that's where, um, so I've got, you know, half my family came through Hawaii. Um, and then years later, uh, I mean, I grew up in Dallas, which is ironic because that's where my grandfather was briefly, but I mean, our being there had nothing to do with complete irony. Yeah, yeah. So I'm from Louisiana. Oh, okay. Being from Dallas, <laughs> growing up in Texas, uh, that's a heck of an influence and a heck of a jump from Dallas to New York. Did is it was it with NYU that brought you to New York, or did you come to New York? Yeah, I came. Then? I came for NYU. I came for film school. So yeah, it, it's funny because I, I think Texas is one of those places that just kind of gets. Into you, like I'm always going to be a Dallas boy. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> even though I lived in New York longer than anywhere else, so I'm I'm both from New York and from Dallas. I met this. Uh, <laughs> I, I I mean I, I met this, um, which makes me insufferable. You know, like somebody was joking with me because I mentioned something about the fact that like I, I put a little bit of Texas in so many of my books, like it just pops up from place to place. You know, like if I'm doing some random little scene somewhere, lots of times I'll just put it in Texas. And but um, and somebody was like. People from Texas always are talking about Texas. And I was like, yeah, well, the, all, people from New York, too. You know, so I, I'm like, I'm insufferable. It's the best of both. It's the worst of both worlds. I guess. So you're always talking about Dallas and exactly. you're always talking about. T- so are you a Mavericks fan? Is that why? No, I'm a I'm a Jeremy Lin fan. That's that's why I was interested in basketball. I, I, I grew up kind of anti-sports as a kid, actually, because I was a nerd. Um, and, you know, like Texas was all about football was king. And I was like, whatever. Um, <laughs> but... Uh, <laughs> But then, yeah, I mean, when Jeremy Lin hit the, actually, it, it when 
Korean World Cup soccer happened a few years before that, and Korea was doing incredibly well in World Cup soccer. It was insane, uh, and I totally got sucked into it. And, you know, went to the Korean restaurants to watch the games in New York, and you know, be the red, go, you know, Korea fighting. It was amazing. But yeah, then when when Jeremy Lin hit. I got totally pulled into it and I just kind of fell in love with basketball. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? Like I, I watched so much of it that I ended up kind of really not just being a fan of Lynn, but being a fan of the sport. So it's ridiculous. Well, I think it, it goes to even your, your Instagram post, which was my favorite Instagram yeah. post. And it's actually one of the more recent ones, which that idea of representation, like you weren't, when you don't see yourself, it's very hard for you to get invested in things. But there's this difference when you can see yourself or you see someone that you can invest in and you even said that in a stream that you just did about characters it's like a premise of a comic book is really great but investing in the character and who the character is and whether or not you relate to them heritage wise or legacy wise or family wise or visually like investing in who they are is how you keep people hooked in the storyline yeah the uh, i mean I, I, I mean, I've, I've thought about this for years, but it's like we all have seen movies that are spectacular, that are gorgeous and have, you know, blow things up beautifully. And um, uh, but we don't care. You know what I mean? Because unless you care about those characters, you're not going to be invested in the uh, in the story. So it's all about making us feel like we we care what happens to them, you know. So, uh, I mean, I, I, I think since making that movie Robot Stories back in the day, I've always kind of thought of what I do being taking crazy genre stuff and marrying it with um, emotionally compelling stories. You know, just finding some little kernel of something that feels real and true and uh, uh, something worth exploring. I mean, and I think that's what probably got me uh, uh, work at Marvel in the first place, you know, Um, because Marvel became Marvel by doing that, you know, by taking these crazy fantastical stories and then, uh, you know, having these characters who were flawed and, you know, made mistakes and and uh, were neurotic and had, had issues, <laughs> you know, like all that stuff is compelling. That's that's um, I mean, we um, we want that vicarious feeling of, um, you know, cutting loose and having powers and being able to do things in the world. But um, but none of that means anything if the characters aren't. Uh, struggling you know so that those kinds of stories have always been incredibly compelling i mean that's i think that's why i got i was so always have always been so compelled by the hulk too you know like um you know this is a character who loses his mind you know what i mean like that's that's what he's all about it's about anger right um uh but deep down inside bruce banner is always trying to do the right thing and even the hulk is always trying to do the right thing i mean that's what's fascinating when you read those early stories i mean not all of them some of the some of those stories are really brutal and they're really about abuse, you know. Mm-hmm. And the Hulk is abusive, particularly towards Rick Jones. I mean, it's really it's deep. Um, but a lot of those classic Hulk stories are, uh, you know, you know, you've got this big, gruff, furious uh, monster, but the monster's angry for the right reasons. You know what I mean? Like what the monster does, with the, how the monster gets angry. Like you know, the, you're. That's unacceptable. <laughs> like we're not yeah. in a civilized world. We don't smash things. But but nine times out of ten in those in those stories, the Hulk is, uh, it's is, um, sticking up for the underdog. You know what I mean? And, and or 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 smashing those who are uh, oppressing other people. You know what I mean? Like they, there's a it's it's an interesting dynamic, right? I mean that's the um, uh, 
that's one of the compelling things about it. And, you know, what makes it really emotionally compelling is that the there's always a price to be paid, you know, um, mm -hmm. that even if he's doing – even if he's motivated by the right things, uh, Bruce Banner always pays the price, you know. Which is interesting in reading <clears throat> World War Hulk. You even find a way in your writing for the writer to be empathetic about the fact that Hulk has just lost everything because of someone else's choices. I don't know about other readers, but I was literally conflicted about who actually is the bad guy in this situation because either side has done is doing or has done something mm -hmm. that affects people who had nothing to do with the decision. Mm -hmm. And I feel like you you really have a way of going like even deeper into giving their perspective and who they are. And I almost felt like for a second that Hulk was the underdog because he got kicked off. Yeah, well, he definitely starts off Planet Hulk as the underdog. I mean, I remember there was a Ladrone who did the covers uh, for that for that series. He they're, they're amazing, um, but he said some point really early on, he said, you know, the more the Hulk gets beat up, the more you know battered and bloodied he is, the more we're going to love him. And I, I really took that to heart. I, I, I thought that was a really you know key idea. You know that. Uh, the, at the beginning, Hulk is – so he's been exiled to Earth because the heroes decide that he's too dangerous for Earth, right? Um, so they shoot him into space. He ends up by accident on this gladiator planet basically. And, um, and he passes through a portal on the way there. So he's weakened. Uh, he's not as – he isn't the strongest one there is. Um, and you know, during the course of the story, he gradually kind of regains his strength. But when it starts off, um, he, could be, he can be cut. He could be killed. And as a result, he also – he needs to work with other people in order to survive. So he bonds with these other gladiators. So all of that was critical to, um, yeah, setting him up as the underdog. And that uh, I think that kind of setup gave us a chance to really sympathize with the guy. Yeah. Well, you, and I think you have this love for not your typical heroes. Oh, yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, I um, – yeah, it's funny. Like the Hulk has always been my favorite Marvel hero. And the Hulk is – um, like you say, not a typical superhero. This isn't a spandex and capes and flying around, you know, <laughs> kind of character. Um, not that many characters have capes anymore, but, uh, um, but he, uh, he's, yeah, he's really, I mean, he's a monster, right? Like that, uh, I, I think I've always been drawn to outsiders, you know? Um, I mean, this is nothing particularly special. I think most people are, I mean, a huge chunk of pop culture is, uh, driven by characters who are outsiders, you know, like the X-Men, Harry Potter. Um, I think everybody feels like, um, everybody feels different. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. like everybody feels like, oh, you know, everybody goes through some stage in their life when they don't belong. I mean, you know, uh, and, and that kind of, that feeling drives a lot of, uh, a lot of these big stories that we're all compelled by. Um, uh, so, you know, but but I think you know that I, that's that's that whole notion of being an other and yet still caring about the world and still trying to do the right thing has I think that's stuck with me in a lot of the stuff I've written over the years. Do you think that comes from growing up in Dallas, Texas? Well, you know, I wouldn't I, I wouldn't specify Dallas. I mean, I had a great time growing up in Dallas. I also you know had some not so great things happen. Um, I mean, I, I but yeah, I do, I do think it comes from being a you know, a biracial kid, uh, or, you know, uh, I was a non-white kid, um, 
and uh, was aware of that from a very young age, you know. Um, uh, you know, like I say, I had, you know, kind of a, I had a great childhood, uh, kind of a classic outdoor, you know, Boy Scouts, riding my Schwinn bike around, Stingray, riding my Schwinn Stingray to the comic book store, going down the creek, killing snakes, all that kind of good, you know, outdoor, suburban stuff. And um, big Dungeons and Dragons Yes, fan. and I was a big nerd too, so I was, and me and my friends were huge Dungeons and Dragons freaks and Micronauts freaks and Marvel Comics freaks. And um, uh, so, you know, I had great friends and a great time growing up. Um, but at the same time, I also had, you know, encounters at different stages that, uh, that definitely made me angry. Uh, and, um, probably <laughs> hence my interest in the Hulk. Uh, <laughs> uh, I, and you know, but I mean, I was, and I was very aware of the fact that, um, through no fault of their own, plenty of people will find themselves, um, abused or exiled or, or set apart. And, um, and so, uh, those, you know, stories that dealt with that have always been compelling to me and characters who were different. I mean, I, I had gone, um, I recently wrote an essay about my, uh, for Uncanny Magazine. Uh, I was asked to contribute an essay and I was like, hey, you know, I, I found this old box full of my old D&D stuff. Why don't I write about that? And they were like, great. So I dug up my D&D stuff and I looked through the notebooks and I was like, ah, this is going to be hilarious. You know, I'm going to look at all the, you know, the world building I did as a kid and, you know, kind of poke gentle fun at my centaur characters and all that. And the more I dug into it, the more like it really was, it, it kind of was uh, harrowing. I mean, it was it, because, um, I mean, it is hilarious, you know what I mean? But it's also really personal in the sense that like I had all these characters who were like half something, you know what I mean? Like these, you know, half elves and half orcs and my main character was a centaur and, you know, like even like one of the half elf characters. And I was specifying lots of times I was specifying not only the sort of species as in elf or dwarf or whatever, but also the race of characters, you know what I mean? Like, and I, like there's one half elf character and I'd written a little bio on the back. And this is when I was like, between the ages of, say, maybe 10 and 13, you know, so I'm not exactly sure when I wrote this, but I was a kid, you know, and I, I you know, I wrote that, you know, this character was, um, you know, half elf and half and half black and that and, and I explicitly wrote that he was like, you know, not accepted by either, you know, group or whatever. And then and so the centaur character was my main obsession and um, had built this, you know, like I had these incredibly elaborate like blueprints and uh, detailing this, uh, basically this city state that he founded, you know, and I have this thousand year history describing <laughs> how it all came to this, you know, I mean, it's ridiculous. It's hundreds of pages of stuff. Um, but, and then he had, and, and then I had like a little constitution for this, um, for this city state that this, the centaur character had created. And it was, and, and it's all explicitly, um, about, you know, accepting people of all different backgrounds and stuff. You know what I mean? So it's like, clearly this stuff was <laughs> very much in my mind. Yeah. You know what I mean? Um, so, I mean, yeah, so these are themes that have uh, <laughs> been with me a long time. Um, but yeah, you know, so. And, and that's why I always tell people, like, the stories that we have as kids are so much more profound as we get as adults. Because when you really go back and you analyze what was mentally going on and how we were using the things we love to process those things. Oh, yeah. You're like, okay, if I don't fit in right here, I'm just going to create a space where 
everyone fits in. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, and this was also, I mean, I, I one thing that kind of made me happy looking at all this was, you know, like finding things like Dungeons and Dragons and comics and storytelling. I mean, really storytelling. Uh, finding those things gave me a way to imagine these worlds and imagine myself, you know, to, you know, to, to, to take control of that representation. You know what I mean? Like, it, like I was writing, I mean, one thing that I was kind of, I, I don't know, I won't say it surprised me, but I was impressed by, I guess, I was like patting 12-year-old me on the back a little bit, was that, you know, I was doing, I was writing these kinds of characters, making them up in my world at a time when I don't think, I mean, I read tons of fantasy novels. I don't think any of those fantasy novels I read had um, any uh, people of color as the, as the heroes. You know what I mean? Um, and so I was just doing it, you know what I mean, in my little D&D world, you know. And I was also at the time, of course, you know, writing my little fantasy novellas and everything. I've got like these ridiculous novellas that are written out in longhand in these notebooks at home too, you know. So I, I mean, I was, I was just telling these stories and, um, and I basically haven't stopped. <laughs> Which is amazing. No, and I really, I really honestly, and I, I don't, I don't say this lightly because I have a very similar background. Uh, my family is multi-ethnic. And there's this idea that you you don't fit in or no one ever really gets everything and there's not really the space for you to bring all of your identities. And I feel like you even did that in Robot Stories. Yeah. I mean, it was kind of funny because in Robot Stories, I didn't really – I don't know that I really realized what I was doing when I was doing it. But I was like um, – I'm just going to make this movie the way I see it in my head. And the, because, you know, we got, we scrounged up the money from private investors and I didn't, I was not beholden to, you know, Hollywood meetings where people were like, can we make more of these characters? Can we not cast this this way? I, I was just able to do it the way I wanted. And so it's primarily Asian American leads. Um, and every, you know, and it's a, it's a, o, 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 just overall, it's a very diverse cast. Um, um, and race is never explicitly discussed in the piece. But there's subtext there, you know what I mean? Like there's a there's a story where you've got these um, uh, office worker robots, you know, and uh, <laughs> I cast them with half Asian people, you know what I mean? Like like uh, biracial folks, partly because I, I was thinking, well, partly because I wanted to play one of those characters. And then also because I, uh, I wanted to, um, I, you know, I was thinking about it and it was like when they make robots that look like people, they're going to make them, uh, there's a good chance they'll make, them racially ambiguous so that they can sell them in multiple countries with as few tweaks as they have to, you know mm. what I mean? Like, and, and what does that mean? And it, it was a chance to also explore. Um, and I, I, like I said, I didn't quite realize this until after I'd done it, but a lot of the stereotypes that people have negative stereotypes about Asians are similar to negative stereotypes about robots. You know what I mean? People um, stereotype both Asians and robots as sort of like, you know, hyper intellectual, uh, emotionless, uh, you know, dangerous to traditional workers, that kind of a thing. You know, I mean, like there's there those are those are some of the, um, you know, stereotypes and and what the movie does in effect. I mean, it's a anthology picture with a bunch of different um, stories about basically families and couples struggling with the kinds of things that families and couples struggle with. But there's a crazy robot twist in each story. Uh, and at the you know by the end of it i think one of the things the movie does spoiler alert is um explore the notion that if something can think and learn and feel then that something is human right you know so it's it's like it's 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 saying that 
these robots and these artificial intelligences that are part of this story are people, you know, which is also saying that, oh, yeah, the all the Asian people in this movie are people, you know, <laughs> which is not at all a revolutionary thing to say. And yet it still feels like it needs to be said from time to time. Yeah. I mean, this this yeah. movie came out in 2002, so it's been a while. But uh, but still, I mean, it's I, that's sadly a, a kind of a thing that we need to see more of. Which is interesting. My favorite, just truth be told, was Robot Fixer. Mm-hmm. I literally was about to cry towards the end. It was just so profound that you could put yourself in that mother's place. Well, that's, you know, Wai Ching Ho is the actress, and she's just Who amazing. is also Marvel connected. And ironically, go. I had to stop watching. And I was like, why does she look so familiar? Why does she look? <laughs> oh, yeah. she's on Defenders. Yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, and she's, I mean, she's an incredible actor. Like, in absolutely incredible, yeah. but also is really incredible um as that mom because you could you could really feel yourself going wow i might steal a robot and and run out of <laughs> a store if i thought that it was going to bring yeah. um all the spoilers sorry all oh, of yeah, my son fine. back to life uh, no yeah that i mean yeah those um that story meant a lot to me too oh, yeah, cindy chung plays the daughter in that story and she's amazing um the two of them just really clicked and i that that was also that's one of my favorite things that I've directed also just because of the way it works with little small moments you know I mean and I think this is um you had mentioned the the thing I would put on written on Twitter answering a question about characterization um and I think this links to that is like finding small ways for people to express character express their relationships for to dramatize those moments um and really the, like the smaller the moment the bigger the emotion sometimes. I mean, I, I guess I love that kind of, I love those kinds of moments when I can build up to um, a big emotional moment that is expressed in the tiniest way. You know what I mean? But in the most mm-hmm. human way. Like, I mean, there's a, there's a point in that movie when, uh, when the mother just reaches out and kind of pushes her daughter's bangs out of her eyes. Um, and just given the way the characters are set up, and sort of how much of a hard ass the mom is uh, throughout that story, when that moment hits, it, that kind of hit me like a you know like a ton of bricks. I mean that that movie. I mean that that moment meant a lot to me, and I just love the way those actresses did that. You know what I mean? Like they, that it, uh, you know, those building up to those have, have those little gestures and little moments mean something big is uh, one of my favorite things um, in film and comics. I mean, mm-hmm. there, there's a a Hulk storyline we just did, um, which ended with Amadeus and uh, <clears throat> Amadeus Cho uh, and uh, sitting next to Hawkeye and. Uh, and it ends with somebody just putting his hand on the other person's shoulder. You know what I mean? And, and that, but that's that little gesture meant the world, given where that story had started. And you co-created Amadeus. Yes, yeah, yeah, with with Tak Miyazawa. Um, uh, Tak Miyazawa is a Japanese Canadian artist who is one of my very favorite collaborators. And yeah, that was the first thing we worked on together. Uh, is the, that first Amadeus Cho story? I just feel like you leave little Easter eggs of yourself and all your writing here <laughs> and there. There's so many robots. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I just grew up obsessed with robots, you know? It was just one of those things as a kid. I mean, I, you know, I was um, eight or nine when Star Wars first came out, you know? So I don't, you know, like, why robots? Why not werewolves or whatever? Well, I, I like werewolves, too. I mean, I, I like all the, I mean... I'm, I'm personally kind of, zombies and vampires, but yeah, I hear you. Yeah, I'm a sucker for all the, you know, for all, for so many different kinds of genre storytelling. Yeah, and also I grew up reading Ray Bradbury, you know, like Ray Bradbury was my first literary hero and I think I, like his story um 
about the electric grandmother really made a big impact on me, you know. So I, you know, part of it, I think, too, is that as a kid, stories about robots can be compelling because a lot of stories about robots are about um, some new creature becoming sentient or cognizant and and figuring out Mm. its place in the world. You know what I mean? Because like, you know, these stories about robots becoming, basically becoming people, which is what you're doing when you're a kid. You're figuring stuff out, you know. So, So those kinds of stories were... And, you know, it, as the way it played out in robot stories also was that the robots were, um, you know, like they were very much the other, you know, and, and I grew up as the other. And so that was a, you know, robots became an interesting way to, I guess, for me to grapple, you know, to grapple with those themes. The other thing that I've noticed about your writing is and your directing is that you have no problem ripping people's hearts out. Like you literally have, like you, you can see where writers are like, oh, we have to give someone some kind of resolution or there needs to be some kind of miracle. And you're like, nah, nope, oh. it's okay. It's all right if someone dies at the end of this. Yeah, I mean, well, sometimes, yeah. I mean, I, I think that's also why I've been drawn to the Hulk over the years, right? Because the Hulk, so many of the great Hulk stories are tragedies. I mean, I joke about this. But and uh, <laughs> but it's true. It's like the 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 Incredible Hulk TV show with uh, Bill Bixby and Lou Ferrigno um, was one of my first introductions to the literary concept of tragedy. You know what I mean? Like that was the first kind of like big kind of pop culture. I just have the TV sad show music that I in watched. my ears. Yeah, right yeah, now. yeah, exactly. <laughs> but it always ended with you know it, with a sad ending. I mean, it starts off with a with a with a with a tragedy. Um, but um, David Banner in that story never gets what. Uh, he, you think he deserves, right? Yeah. He's all. It always ends. He's he always ends up on the road thumbing a ride, you know. He's almost. He's um, always this close. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But that kind of and that that just feels. It felt honest to me at the time, and it still feels honest. And I think in a lot of these stories, um, I mean, yeah, every once in a while, you know, I mean, yes, sometimes I tie stories up with a neat bow, you know what I mean? And people get what they deserve and it's great. Um, other times people don't. And, uh, and the interesting drama is seeing how people react when they don't, you know what I mean? Like the, that, that whole, and, and again, this is something that Marvel's, I think has been in the Marvel DNA from the beginning. Um, you know, the whole notion of Peter Parker, well, I mean, of the Hulk as a tragic figure and also Peter Parker being the kind of lovable loser. Like these characters are, not all living high on the hog. Um, you know, Tony Stark becomes the kind of uh, fantasy of, you know, the brilliant and incredibly rich person. But then <laughs> he also has his own demons in a bottle, right? You know, I mean, like that's the, you know, so that every one of these characters has something that they're struggling with. And that just feels honest, you know. Uh, yeah. So I've always been drawn to those kinds of stories. Um, uh, and, you know, and sometimes that plays out, you know, just as, straight non you know non sentimental non uh non ironic uh tragedy um sometimes it plays out with a touch of humor you know what i mean and you know that people acknowledge the imperfection of the moment and that that becomes the lesson learned or the you know the the thing that they're walking away with you know i also think there's you know real value to fantasy that um you know, escapist work that also has this kernel of emotional truth to it. I mean, like every everything should be fully imbued with emotional truth. But I was <laughs> I happened to rewatch Frozen recently, and in that, um, you know, the song with the trolls. There's this big song about love. Um, you know, the fixer upper song, 
and the at the break there's the big you know like emotional break and the and the the lead troll sings something like um you, we're not saying you can change him they're, they're, she's singing a song to anna about i forget the dude's sven um and she says we're not saying you can change him because people don't really change yeah. <laughs> um which is great you know what i mean like that's that that kind it's of a real like, statement yeah exactly that's a real <laughs> statement you know and then she says you know i i i think it's like all we're saying is that whatever that love is a a mystery that's powerful and strange or something like that. So, um, so, but, but acknowledging that it's a huge thing to go from A to B yeah, is big. You know what I mean? Like a lot of stories want you to go from A to Z, you know what I mean? Want a, want a full turnaround, you know, a full redemption, a full, you know, uh, um, everything to change. And in reality, we go through huge things and we change just a little bit. You know what I mean? Like yeah. we can have the biggest you know, trauma or, or, or tragedy or whatever in our lives or, you know, the, the, some really big moment. And it just nudges us just a little. But that little step is huge, you know. So I love that kind of story where taking that one little step means a lot, you know. I love it. So question. Favorite world you've ever created? Ooh. Um, I would say it's a toss-up between Planet Sakaar, where Planet Hulk is set. Um, yeah. It's, <laughs> I mean, I, I, I've... I, uh, I recently got to write the novelization of Planet Hulk. We did a prose novel based on Planet Hulk last year, um, and I got to write it, and it was amazing. It was my first novel, aside from my unpublished fantasy novels, uh, but uh, <laughs> my middle school fantasy novels. Um, but um, don't discount them. It's yeah, I never know. Too I, late. I, I, I'm thinking, always thinking. <laughs> I got a, I got a, I have an idea, but. Uh, um, but yeah, so I got to write this um, this this novel about uh, you know Planet Hulk, and I just love diving back into that world. I mean, we had so much fun creating that thing. I mean, it was one of those kind of really sweet spots in my career where everybody was just working on the same page, and I would get together every week with Mark Benicia, the editor here at Marvel, who I was working on those books with, and we'd you know go to some grubby pizza joint, you know, in the basement of some grubby pizza joint a couple of blocks from here and, and just talk about these, you know, these, these, these stories and these characters and these moments and, and how we we're going to develop this world. And I just remember just kind of cackling and getting really excited. It was just so much fun building all that. Um, and, you know, because everything was, we created everything in that world to fit this, to tell this big story. And it all made sense, you know, like the world made sense. We had enough time to do it all. Mm. Um, and then also we were, figuring out certain elements as we were going along and we had that kind of space and time and everybody was in the right mode to kind of create on the fly and develop stuff on the fly. So, I mean, the whole thing was just so much fun. And so it's, I'm always thrilled to dive back into that world. But yeah, you're, I mean, a lot of the stuff that I was, I mean, I, I'm lucky enough to be in a, to have a job where the stuff that I was most obsessed with when I was 10 years old is still a lot of the stuff that I'm most obsessed with now. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. a lot of that is still driving the kinds of stories that I'm telling. I also think it's really cool that you use your impact and influence to kind of trailblaze social justicely, but also... Is it the Boy Scouts that brings the voting in? It's like what? Like, <laughs> yeah. and, and, and I and I I love it. I I came from politics. Yeah. I worked in politics for a number of years of my life. I ran political campaigns. I think it's great, but you don't see a lot of really nerdy nerds <laughs> like posting March pictures yeah. and putting up their "I just voted" stickers. Yeah, well, that, uh, yeah, voting is. Yeah, I mean, I'm 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 all about democracy. Get out there and vote. Participate. <laughs> Call your reps. Um, yeah, that's one of my that's that one was of my an obsessions. order. Yeah, yeah. No, those are 
Those are my, uh, yeah, I, I'm like on, yeah, on social media, I'm either, I'm talking about like goofy stuff I did when I was a kid with D&D or whatever. I'm talking about voting uh, and then I'm talking about my goofy comics. So, uh, or yeah, every once in a while I talk about um, food, talk about what I'm cooking. Uh, ramen, mostly. Uh, yes. Well, uh, actually, uh, kalguksu, which is, uh, which is a, a different noodle dish. Um, oh, please do yeah, explain. Yeah, yeah. Oh, it's it's well. That's one of my favorite Korean foods. Um, but the but yeah, I mean, I, I I think the voting thing is tied to, you know, it's it is tied in with everything else we're talking about. You know what I mean? Like like this whole notion of we live in a we live in a country which is um, you know the principles of the country are about uh, about equal opportunity and uh, for all, right? And um, but those principles don't always. Um, live unless we vote for them you know so we have to get out there and vote and also voting itself just the act of voting the act of being able to vote um is under attack you know so it needs to be protected and um and one way you protect it is by voting for folks who are going to protect it so anyway but yeah i'm i'm very um very pro voting so i will definitely talk that up a lot which I appreciate fully, because <laughs> um, I think that ties hand in hand with your work in the representation space, right? Mm-hmm. Um, at least, literally, it is representation um, across <laughs> the board. <laughs> it literally is true, true. And that's um, that's amazing because you don't have to do that. Well, I kind of do. I mean, I would not feel good if I didn't, you know. Um, so I try to, I try to do what I can. I guess. I don't know, <laughs> you know, um, but, uh, but yeah, I mean, it's also like there, you know, I want to, you know, I want to live in a world where folks can tell the stories they want to tell and where folks can be who they are. So, you know, there's some practical things that we can do to help make that more possible. And that includes, you know, supporting work that, you know, reflects a wider audience and it also includes voting. Um, so you know, those are those are all things I try to do. So you started writing very young. Yes, I think I saw a quote that said about nine years old. Once yeah. you realized that writing was a thing that could be a job, you're like, this is it. Yeah, I think it coincided with my becoming obsessed with uh, Ray Bradbury. You know, I remember um, one birthday I got this giant book of Ray Bradbury short stories, um, and in the front there was a there was a essay he'd written. I think it was called "Drunk and in Charge of a Bicycle," uh, <laughs> and it was basically about his experiences as a young writer, you know. And um, and the thing that really hit me about that was, I mean, he talks about as a young writer, um, sort of giving himself the challenge to write a story every single week. I think it was every week. It might have been every. I, I don't remember. I, I'm pretty sure it was every week. He was going to write and finish a short story every single week. Um, and he just did that for weeks and weeks and weeks. And then one day he wrote something and he was like, oh, I think this is actually good. You know, I, I think this one actually works, you know. Um, and that was kind of a revelation to me because it 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 was, well, first off, it was um, a little intimidating because it's like, oh, well, you have to, you really have to spend a lot of time. Like Ray Bradbury, you know, like he he had to do this for months and months and years and years and years before he wrote something that he finally thought was good, you know, but that's also incredibly liberating and inviting, you know what I mean? In the sense that like, oh, well then I could do that, 
You know what I mean? Like I, I like you don't have to be perfect. Anyway, but that that, that I think that essay from uh, Ray Bradbury had a big impact on me. And I, 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 you know, I've got these notebooks. Oh my god! When I was digging up those D and D notebooks, I also dug up these other notebooks I had. And you know, I've, it's just like tomes, like you know, like like just stacks and stacks. You know, just so much writing, so much writing. Um, and it was all. And, and the the great thing was that it was all just for me at that point. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. I, I mean, like I, you know, I had friends who were reading that and all that kind of stuff, but it wasn't like I was doing this and putting every, you know, like putting everything out on the internet the minute I'd done it. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like I was just, I, I had all of this time and space to write and write and write and write terrible stuff and make mistakes and, 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 but just have fun and keep working on it um, without, uh, without it haunting me <laughs> for the rest of my life in digital form, um, never goes yeah, away. Exactly. No, if any, if any, if any of it gets out, it'll be my choice now. But, um, <laughs> but, uh, but you know, I think that's a huge gift. You know what I mean? That 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 chance to develop and to 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 find out. You know, to 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 learn in uh, in private. You know, yeah. that kind of privacy is, I think, can be really uh, is is underrated, but very valuable. I think for young writers and young creators um at the same time once i had stuff that i was you know proud of or happy with then i was sending that out to contests and stuff um i think at when i was a junior in high school like i got a second place uh award from scholastic in one of the scholastic writing competitions and i somewhere i still have like the 50 dollar savings bond they sent me but that was that was a real turning point for me too because it was like that was the first time i'd written something that people other than my friends and family you know sort of put a stamp of approval on you know so it was like oh you know maybe you know <laughs> so i got one more question and yeah. then we're gonna do quick fire yeah. i really need to know how a banana and ketchup tastes we're gonna <laughs> oh, get to that terrible yes as it sounds awful um you have this intricate way of presenting race, color, background, legacy in a way where it's just this is the existence of it. In my personal opinion, it is your way of fighting back against stereotypes. And we were kind of talking about that earlier. Mm. Is there an intent in your work to break down and deconstruct these stereotypes and how that's impacted your work? Yeah, I mean, I, th I think definitely. I, uh, um, I definitely grew up very angry with pop culture, <laughs> uh, with certain aspects of pop culture or certain things I would see in pop culture, you know, in the sense that like as a Asian American kid, um, you know, I would, I would, you know, like I, I, the, one of the racist things that would happen to me as a kid is like kids I didn't know. It was always kids I didn't know would, um, would kind of do this like, you know, karate moves in front of my face and all that kind of stuff. And, you know, that's learned behavior, right? Um, but, and it's partly taught by stereotypical, you know, depictions of folks or the fact that that was the only depiction of folks, of Asian folks that, that a lot of people saw. Um, and, you know, and then I, you know, like there were, so there was, there's a, a sort of a set of, of stereotypical uh, things, ways in which Asian people were depicted that drove me crazy as a kid. Um, and I think partly because that was so personal to me, I also was aware of how, of other stereotypes. And I was really drawn to work when it seemed to break those stereotypes. 
one of the characters in Marvel comics that really made a big impact on me as a kid was Robbie Robertson, the uh, <laughs> <laughs> the Daily Bugle. Um, uh, you know that that he uh, and you know he's this you know uh, an African American man, middle aged African American man in a white collar job in a position of authority, and that was something I honestly I don't know if I'd seen in in pop culture up until that point you know and i you know i'm not black but i saw him and i identified with him you know i also identified with him because he was he had it locked down and he was always trying to do the right thing but he was dealing with his crazy boss you know what i mean j jonah jameson who's you know always volatile and so <laughs> you know jj would freak out about something and and robbie would kind of clean it up you know, but I, of course I'm reading too much into this, right? But but that's what we do. That's what and that's what these stories are for. They're there to be read into. But but that whole notion of a person of color who is controlling his or her emotions and anger in order to make an impact in the world really resonated with me. You know what I mean? That that the way he that sort of unspoken way in which I was imagining him navigating his position in the world. And uh, trying to do the right thing—that was huge for me. So I don't remember where we started. <laughs> no, we were we were talking about the deconstructing of stereotypes. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. So, work. so right. So so as I've written people, I've always of different backgrounds and everything over the years. I've always tried to educate myself about what kinds of what are the pitfalls in the depictions of these characters. Where are the stereotypes? Where are the things that drive people crazy? You know what I mean? And let's see if we can do something different. You know. It's interesting because that strategy even may have its own pitfalls, mm. you know, because like for years I have, ne I never, I actively avoided writing any Asian or Asian American character as a martial arts person. You know what I mean? Because I was like, that's the stereotype I grew up with and that bugged the hell out of me when I was a kid. You know what I mean? That's, that's the thing I got hit with and I didn't like it, you know? Um, but Martial arts are awesome. You know what I mean? It's like, a, you know, I mean, like, I, I freaking, you know, there's a certain point when I was, like, watching those 90s Hong Kong movies. And, of course, I grew up I grew up watching these uh, Kurosawa movies and these Mifune movies. I mean, Toshiro Mifune was, like, huge to me as a kid, you know? I mean, just his presence meant so much to me in those movies. Um, uh, but I would never have written on my own. I would, you know, like I, I would actively avoid characters who are like the samurai character, or the ninja character, or whatever, you know. Um, and it's only recently where I've been like, I'm gonna just do that. I'm gonna reclaim that. You know what I mean? It's like, I, it's it's funny too because with Amadeus, I made like Amadeus. I took this old Marvel name, Mastermind Excello, who's a super genius, and we were asked to reimagine characters based on these old Marvel names, and uh, and I came up with Amadeus. So Amadeus is like, he's a super genius. That. That is a bit of a Asian American stereotype, right? Um, but my take on that was, well, I'm gonna. Uh, what am I gonna do then? I'm only gonna write Asian American lunkheads because I'm avoiding that stereotype. You know what I mean? And like, and I did write Asian American lunkheads, like like Jake, uh, like Jake O, who is a Shield agent I created around the same time. You know, and who's kind of glorious. Like, I mean, I loved writing him too. But with Amadeus, I was like, I'm gonna take that and I'm gonna subvert it. You know, because I'm gonna take that one part that sort of, you know. That that uh, the Asian American who's good at math, um, but I'm going to make this. I'm going to break down all these other aspects of the model minority myth. You know what I mean? So he's he might be good at math, but he has he's he's he talks all the time, 
You know, he's, he's the opposite of inscrutable. He's entirely scrutable. You know what I mean? Like if it's in his head, it's out of his mouth and it's on his face. You can read him like a book, you know what I mean? And that, and, uh, and he has big, you know, he's, he's, he's not submissive. Uh, he's not at all the submissive, efficient, emotionless machine. His emotions are right out there. He's got anger issues just like the Hulk. You know what I mean? Like he eventually becomes the Hulk, but, but, you know, so it was a way to like, um, you know, to, subvert right at the same time uh and you know to 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 mess with that but um but with the martial arts thing like only recently have i written characters like i, I finally got a chance to write shang chi uh master of kung fu uh and in a storyline in the totally awesome hulk we did this storyline with a bunch of asian american heroes coming together and uh and i loved writing shang chi he's awesome you know i think part of it too though is that like if the only Asian American hero you're going to show or the only hero of whatever background you're going to show uh, is of that sort of stereotypical background, you know, if the only Asian American hero you've got is the Kung Fu guy, then you might have a bit of a problem. But uh, or or then, you know, like you run you run a few more risks of reproducing stereotypes. But if you've got a bunch of them, one of them's uh, the, you know, the master of Kung Fu. Another one is, you know, is, is Silk, who has got spider powers. And another one is Ms. Marvel, who is Pakistani, the Pakistani Muslim uh, Ms. Marvel character. And, you know, you've got a whole range. Then, then no one of these characters is, is there standing in for all Asian Americans or all of people of a different background. It's, that, it's having that um, diversity within diversity is, is, I think, awesome. You know, having that wide range of characters that can free you to do all kinds of stuff. Reflections that break down the monolith. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, and honestly, it's not even, you don't even have to try hard. It's just reflecting the world around you, right? We live in a, we live in a world where people of all different backgrounds. I mean, in, you had mentioned this before. I've got this children's book called The Princess Who Saved Herself. And, uh, and the main character, you know, in the beginning of the book, we give her name. And I'm, I don't remember, I'm not going to remember every bit of her name right oh, now. Oh, no. Oh, did you write it down? Gloria Chang Epstein Takahara de la Garza? Is that? Yeah, is that Champion. A- and her last name champion. is Champion. Right, exactly. So she's got this really <laughs> long name, which is, uh, you know, and part of that was like as a biracial person, it's like, I just wanted to do a multiracial person who was not a tragic figure. You know what I mean? Who wasn't like torn between two cultures or like warped by this experience of whatever. There's millions of people who are, who are, uh, uh, who are multiracial and are very seldom depicted as just people doing their thing in the just world. Being. Yeah. So this is a girl who plays rock and roll guitar. She drives the witch down the crazy, street crazy because the witch plays classical guitar, and they have to work it out. Um, I also love that you made the witch a hipster. Yes, it's a hipster witch. That that's all due to Tak Tak Miyazawa, who co-created Amadeus <laughs> Show, also also did that. But that but that story, um, yeah, I mean that was significant to me because uh, uh, because as much as that name sounds like a joke, there are tons of people. Who are who have that many different backgrounds and different parts? I mean, that's just a lived experience. That's yeah. that's the world we live in, you know. Like, you know, I I got you know. I mean, <laughs> you know, I'm preaching to the choir here. Yes, absolutely. But, uh, but yeah, I mean, that's that that's a huge percentage of families in America just to have folks of all different backgrounds. Even white people have totally different backgrounds. Yes, like on <laughs> like the white side of my family is English and German. You know, like like there's complexity to everybody's heritage basically yeah. and um and i think stories tend to be improved when uh you know when that's when you open a door to that kind of stuff um so quick fire questions yes 
how like banana and ketchup how did what <laughs> like yeah. you're a brave man yes this is uh, linked to the book we did called abc disgusting which was an alphabet book about disgusting things and one of the gross things we did to promote it was uh if we hit a certain amount of the kickstarter uh i promised to eat banana with ketchup and you um, made it yes and you I actually did. have a long history of very successful kickstarters oh well thank you yes yes it's been fun um uh and and talk again has been involved with a lot of those yeah. talk me as well my Long-time collaborator. But yes, it, it, it was uh, – I, I nearly gagged. But it's actually a thing though. Like that's – you know, like ketchup with banana I think is a Filipino thing. So it's not even it, – I, I I'd never heard of it, but it's a thing. That's a lot. Um, what inspires you? Oh, uh, I don't know. Life. Just everyday stuff, you know, like riding on the subway in New York. You just see people interact in a certain way. You see – I don't know. You see unexpected people have a little moment together. You see – just little little details. I read a book called um, One Writer's Beginnings by Eudora Welty when I was a kid, which is all about just like observation. You know, she's talking about like training yourself to notice things. Okay. And so that's a big part of it. Um, also, you know, like natural history, biology, all that kind of stuff, you know, like, like you know, like everything, everything you learn eventually plays a role in the stuff you write. But, um, but yeah. Favorite book? Oy. That's tough. Favorite book. My God. You can also pick a top three. <laughs> um, like favorite? I'm going to say like, how about influential or things that made, meant a lot to me? Like that Ray Bradbury book of short stories I mentioned when I was a kid. Macbeth, Shakespeare's Macbeth was huge for me. I just love that play so much. We actually did Macbeth when I was a senior in, in high school. In comics, uh, like Peanuts. And Naushika of the Valley of Wind, the uh, Miyazaki uh, graphic novels. That's, that's a start right there. That's amazing. What does your iPod and or other listening device look like right now? Oh, um, you know, I don't actually listen to I, – I don't – I mean, I've got a phone. So I've got like random stuff on my phone. But I don't actually listen to my stuff on my phone so much. I just I, – I, I instead listen to stuff when I'm – sitting at my desk and I can't always, but you know, sometimes when I'm, sometimes when I'm writing, I can have music going on. Sometimes I just can't. And I don't know, I haven't been able to pinpoint why yet, but, um, this is going to sound so hipstery, but I'm actually listening to LPs more now. <laughs> I was listening to Prince Vinyl all weekend. What oh are you talking about? That's not hipstery. It's, Everything it's... sounds better on vinyl. <laughs> so, well, also just because I, um, I couldn't find stuff. Uh, and I, I've been obsessed with The Wiz. <laughs> wait, since... wait, are we talking about original? Are we talking about motion picture Wiz, Diana Ross? Or are we talking like Stephanie I, Mills, Broadway I'm Wiz? talking about The Wiz Live, when they did The Wiz Live. Oh, you're Live. talking about the one where they had the, the very young girl come in and, and David Allen Greer was in Yes, exactly. Oh, exactly. so good. So I, you know, like I watched that and I like tweeted about it and I loved it. And, um, and because I'd seen The Wiz when I was a kid and I, you know, I had the album and then I had the movie album, the movie soundtrack album and all of that. Um, but I had uh, most recently, um, I found out that that song, Brand New Day, Luther Vandross mm-hmm. was he wrote that before the musical and then it was used in the musical like he I mean it was and so I was trying to find it and I couldn't find it so I ended up um, like it's not available digitally uh, apparently so I ended up uh, you know like going online and finding some you know place that sold vinyl and I just I just just yesterday I listened to that three times I was listening to the Luther mm-hmm. Vandross album Luther 
um, on vinyl for three three times. I'm a, a big jazz head. There's a lot of things oh. in jazz that don't yeah, exist yeah, yeah. on digital just yet. That I, and I love collecting, um, so I'm yeah. not mad at that at all. <laughs> um, besides Hulk, who is your favorite superhero? Oh, um, among Marvel Marvel specific characters, uh, I think Storm and Doctor Strange and Silver Surfer are my others uh, next to Hulk. Well, of course Amadeus, but I I, I, I feel like I, mean, I uh, it was kind of that's that's of course Amadeus. Yeah. But. If you could have any superpower, what would it be? Oh, um, I've thought a lot about this. Um, probably the power to control time. This wouldn't be going back in time because time travel is, is I, I time travel stories don't make any sense at all. So I, I just I, I I'm not going to wrap my head around that. Also, it's like I, I kind of feel like time travel, uh, like in actual real life, would just creates too many problems. Like I mean, in actual real life, listen to me, it doesn't exist in actual real life. We're all traveling in time forward, but um, but going back in time to change things, I feel like destroys uh other people's agency. Do you know what I mean? Like if you go back in time and change something, you're basically destroying other people. You know, other people have made choices. It's not just your choices. So if you go back in time, I don't know. I, this is, I, I think about this too much. So, but, um, but um, I love the notion of being able to be able to stop time in a way so that I can get extra time personally. I'm you not mad I mean? at you for that. How about that? All. Like, stop everybody else. <laughs> stop time for the whole world, but then I get an extra eight hours, right? Oh, yeah. Like, well, that would be that would be a really good superpower. More hours in a day to write. Yeah, exactly. Or sleep, sleeping, sleeping. sleeping the more, older I get, the more important sleeping becomes. Okay. Um, so yeah, that would be that. And then uh, aside, from, if if that's unavailable, then it would be uh, the ability to talk to speak any language, including the language of animals. <laughs> oh, so. it's like Dr. Doodle meets Babel. I'm here go. for it. Uh, so what is your superpower? Oh, man. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> Greg uh, Pock, creator of worlds. Yeah, I don't know. I guess <laughs> I, 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 it's, it's a bit of a cliche. I guess words, it's a cliche. Um, of course, once you say your superpower is words, then you're going to say something stupid. So I <laughs> stop while I'm ahead. This has been amazing. Well, thank you very much. Oh, Appreciate thank it. you. This was ex- it, it, it was just as much fun as I thought it was. <laughs> Sometimes the difference between the existence of our favorite character and their stories never being created is one person asking, why not? There's space for all of us. Each of us has the capacity to be a superhero. Every kid deserves to see themselves in the stories they read. And just like eight-year-old me, all of us deserves our own personal Monica Rambeau. So that's it. Thanks for listening. And check out the next episode where I get to sit down with writer, comedian, and YouTube star, Francesca Ramsey. I'll see you next time. So I know if you're a total Marvel fan that you know that on July 6th, Marvel Studios' Ant-Man and the Wasp is coming out. What if I told you you could have a chance to go see it in L.A.? Apply for a Marvel MasterCard from now until May 31st and be entered in a chance to win a trip to L.A. to attend the premiere of Marvel Studios' Ant-Man and the Wasp. 
No purchase necessary. Must be 18 or older. For rules and to apply, visit marvelmastercard.com.